Get ready for adventure. Islands of it, man. From the studios to Volcano Bay, this is the Universal Joint, a podcast devoted to all things universal with your host, Jim Hill and Dustin Foods. Welcome to the Universal Joint podcast. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill. And while we now have the answer to the $71 billion question, which was whether or not Comcast would be able to wrestle 20th Century Fox away from the Walt Disney Company, there's still lots of things to discuss about this corporate acquisition and what the fallout might be for the Universal Parks and Resorts, not to mention Universal Pictures, which is why I now want to bring in the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network's resident expert when it comes to all things Universal, and that's Dustin Fuse. So, Dustin, what's your take on on what just went down? Well, it it was interesting because with Comcast chief executive Brian Roberts addressing that issue during the company's quarterly earnings call late last week, and he said that Comcast ultimately pulled back from the pursuit of 21st Century Fox because, quote, we thought we couldn't build enough shareholder value. Roberts is a very financially disciplined guy. In fact, that's what kind of made Brian crazy about Fox when he originally rejected Comcast's initial attempts uh, to acquire a number of that corporation's properties. Now, when we looked at it, it was very interesting because it didn't just include the Fox that we know. It actually included everything from Fox's uh, film and television studios, a number of their regional sports networks, as well as the cable networks like FX, FXX, and Nat Geo. You see, Comcast's original bid for Fox was $60 billion. Now, put that towards what Disney's original bid for Fox, which was $52.4 billion, it's actually $7 billion more. But according to what executives Fox have been saying, one of the main reasons the 20th Century Fox accepted Disney's bid of $52.4 billion over the $60 billion Comcast was putting up was that Fox felt that Disney would have an easier time when it came to, what, a regulatory approval of of this acquisition, right? Yeah, and Fox was worried about that. If they tried to get in bed with Comcast, they'd actually open themselves up to all sorts of antitrust issues. But as far as what Brian Roberts was concerned, and, you know, I'm quoting now from what he told investment analysts during last week's earnings call, in the case of Fox, it was a unique opportunity. We thought it was mostly about an international expansion opportunity, which is why on June 13th of this year, Comcast came back to the table with their $65 billion all cash bid for 21st Century Fox. Which is, if I understand it correctly, really ticked off Bob Iger because in in order to come out on top here, he he then had to sweeten the deal to what, $71.3 billion? Just in case you're wondering, the difference between the $52.4 billion that Disney originally offered for Fox and the $71.3 billion sweetened deal that Iger had to put together in order to beat the $65 billion that Brian Roberts had offered, that's $18.9 billion, which... 23 years ago this week, the Walt Disney Company paid $19 billion for Capital City's ABC Inc., which was what really got Disney started on the road to becoming this ridiculously vertically integrated mega company that we know today. Yeah, and, but we're if we're talking about inflation, that's $18 billion in 1995 uh, dollars that would actually be worth 
about 29.7 billion in today's dollars. But you know what I'm saying here? I mean, if you took the 7.4 billion dollars that Walt Disney Company paid for Pixar back in January of 2006, and then you added the 4 billion dollars that Disney spent back in August of 2009 to acquire Marvel Entertainment, and then the 4.1 billion that Disney spent uh, back in October of 2012 to acquire Lucasfilm, well, while right, let's throw in the 500 million that Disney spent on Maker Studios in March of 2014. And the $1.6 billion that Disney spent a year ago this month to acquire BAM Tech Media. And just because I'm a Muppet fan, let's throw in that $75 million that Disney spent to acquire Kermit and Company back in February 2004. That's still only $17,675,000,000, which is still $1,225,000,000 short of this $18.9 billion that Iger had to ultimately raise Disney's bid by in order to make sure that Com Comcast didn't wind up with Fox's movie and television assets. Now, of that, when you went through that list of things that Disney had purchased, the 7.4, the 4, the 4.1, the 500 million, what of that, in your opinion, was the best acquisition looking back on it? Was it Pixar? Was it Marvel? It's still too early, in, in my opinion, for Lucasfilm. We're still just starting that, but I, I'd love to get your opinion on that. If they hadn't bought Pixar, I don't know as uh, they would have been able to turn around Walt Disney Animation Studios, or for that matter, we wouldn't have seen what's going on in the parks right now, what was things like Pixar Pier or Toy Story Land or that sort of thing. But even so, we are talking crazy, crazy money here, which took years. I mean, that purchase was... 2006 and only just recently has Disney gotten to the point where if you look at the books they actually with the release of Coco finally recovered that seven billion dollars so we look at this you know the fact that Comcast and Fox which kind of by now means Disney are still in a bidding war for the European pay TV giant Sky now, a lot of people in North America may not know Sky, but Sky is huge business in the worldwide market. And when you're looking at it, Comcast currently still has the highest bid, just $34 billion. Now, does that mean that Disney and Fox are going to just stick on the sidelines? I don't think so. There's a really good chance, and it's expected within the community, that they're going to drive up the price of Sky even higher by putting together another bid in the not-so-distant future. I have heard from a friend in the Team Disney Burbank building that there was supposedly this back-channel conversation with Comcast, one that I'm sure will interest Marvel fans. The, the way I heard it, if Comcast will agree to let the master licensing agreement that Marvel Entertainment Group signed with MCA Inc., that's used to be the parent company of Universal Parks and Resorts, that they signed this deal back in March of 1994. Anyway, if they let this master licensing deal sunset, as in finally come to a close after a set number of years, to be determined at some later date. The Walt Disney Company, in much the same way that Comcast, on July 19th of this year, released a statement that said that Comcast does not intend to pursue further the acquisition of the 20th Century Fox assets and will extend focus on our recommended offer for Sky. Well, what Disney would supposedly do is release a statement that says it is abandoning its pursuit of Sky 
which would then clear the way for Comcast to acquire that European pay television giant. Which, given that Bloomberg reported earlier this week that the Walt Disney Company is reportedly in talks with Turner Broadcasting to buy back the television rights to those 10 Star Wars films that it sold to Turner back in September of 2016, that uh, $200 million deal reportedly gave TNT and TBS exclusive broadcast rights to the original trilogy and, and the prequels, Force Awakens, Last Jedi, Rogue Run, and, and Solo all the way through till uh, 2024. Only now, Disney wants to buy all of those Star Wars uh, movies back so they can get everything under one roof so that it's all ready for when Disney starts the streaming services that's supposed to go live in, uh, in 2019. I would feel a whole lot better if I had uh, some additional st- sources for this story. So let's 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 uh, go back to Universal Parks and Resorts. So does this mean that they may get rid of their theme park rights to the Marvel characters in Islands of Adventure and their other locations? Like they did just open recently a new boutique on Marvel Superhero Islands that when Jill and I were down in Florida in April, we had some great photos inside of it. So much stuff in there, but it, it was new. And they had merchandise that was very appealing for the market that goes to Islands of Adventure. So I don't quite know. It was very interesting to see that store come out within this, this timetable. Well, and it's not like the Universal Parks and Resorts haven't regularly reinvested a Marvel superhero island. To my way of thinking, they've regularly shown the side of Islands Adventures and TLC. I mean, remember back in February 2012, they shut down the Amazing Adventures of Spider-Man. So this already hugely popular attraction could then be upgraded to digital 4K HD. And likewise, the Incredible Hulk coaster, uh, that closed back in September of 2015. So that coaster could be retracted. Not to mention, I, I don't know if you've you got on it your last trip, Dustin, but that new queue with you know, sort of the gamma reactor and and all of the new animation on the monitors overhead, that's a hell of a pre-show now. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, and I still think some of the, the best photos that you can take of Islands of Adventure is right on that bridge that when you look straight up, you see the burst where um, the cars just go crazy. And it's it's awesome because you get that feeling, you get the the mist, you get so much stuff. And I think that there is a lot of conversation back in the when this was all, you know, going down that the Incredible Hulk coaster was going to be closing. Everyone was saying, well, what's going to happen? Is this part of the deal? Is this part of Marvel going back to Disney? And then... Universal just basically recreated the exact same layout with some nice paint and some nice queue and pre-show and it, it was great but we kind of got thrown for a loop and it was really cool to see. That's the beauty of deals that sunset. It's not that something has to happen immediately. The parties involved in this sort of agreement can agree that the previously agreed upon arrangement can then finally come to close to a close at some far up point in the future, five years, 10 years, even longer. If I'm remembering correctly, that the theme park 
license that Warner Brothers Communication Products awarded the Universal Parks and Resorts in 2006, I want to say, for use of the Harry Potter characters' stories and settings in, in, inside the Universal Parks. They have at least two sets of renewal terms, I, with the last one payable, I want to say, on or before July 1st. 2028. When we're looking at it, that's right around the corner. That's less than 10 years from now. If you want to read that licensing agreement for yourself, you can just head over to scc.gov. It is a really cool read, by the way. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've had that chance to go through some of that with a fine-tooth comb, but it's that one in the Marvel agreement that are really fun. Now, speaking of theme park-related stuff, did you see what um, Steve Burke, who's the CEO of NBC Universal? said during his quarterly earnings call. So the same call that we were talking about at the beginning of the show, uh, Steve Burke went on and it was very interesting. I love these these calls because you have a chance to have outside folks who are knowledgeable about the business and knowledgeable about the products. They ask questions that a lot of these CEOs and the, the higher ups aren't prepared for most of the times. But this time it was very interesting because an investment analyst actually asked him about the Fantastic Worlds name that Universal trademarked back in June. Now, given the way that Universal specifically trademarked this name for use in an amusement park, well, this analyst actually asked Steve if Universal Parks and Resorts now had plans to build a fourth theme park in Florida. Well, Steve had a very interesting response. And he said, Well, we are looking at it. We love the theme park business. It is one of our best, most consistent businesses. And we think another gate in Florida would have the advantage of turning Florida from a two or three day destination to potentially a week long destination. Now, mind you, when the travel publication Skift reached out to Universal Orlando's publicity department for further clarification on what Burke had said during this earnings call, this is what they got in return. We've got nothing more to add beyond what was shared on the call, which is a very polite way of saying, mind your own beeswax. We'll tell you about the fourth theme park, which may or may not be called Fantastic Worlds when we're good and ready. And we both have had those emails come back every so often. It's just like, but okay, sure. We'll give you time to get your logos and your videos ready. But we are remembering this. During that call, it was very interesting just getting back to it. Burke and Roberts both revealed that revenues for the Universal theme parks actually grew by 3.6% to $1.4 billion. Universal's theme parks grew by 3.4% over the same period of time to $569 million. Now, how did Universal parks and resorts decide to spend some of this dough? Well, they actually started to reinvest in the theme parks. They put some brand new lockers into the location. So when you go to Universal Studios Florida, they have uh, an attraction called the Revenge of the Mummy. And they used to have a set of lockers on the right-hand side. Do you remember this? Yeah, and I think I've heard something about this. These new lockers don't use your fingerprint anymore. They use what? They actually use your theme park admission ticket. Oh. That was brilliant because the amount of times that you would put your finger onto the little sensor and it wouldn't work. And then you'd have to go and get a, uh, a team member and they'd come back and 
you eventually remember that you put your stuff into 301 and not 310. So it's nice that they're actually getting some newer uh, technology. So this is actually what's known as Locker Link. It makes the whole stow-and-go process that they used to have a little bit more smoother. Plus, a large number of the lockers were deliberately made for the smallish side. So that way, guests can actually use uh, use them to just stow uh, their phones. Hmm. Sounds like a smart idea. Is Universal going to walk this locker link concept out to other locations at Islands? Or the studios where guests have to stow belongings before they can ride things like, what, Forbidden Journey and Escape to Gringotts? Yeah, I've heard that that's the next step. Okay. Um, do you have to put your stuff in a locker before you're allowed to ride Jurassic park river adventure surprisingly they don't have free lockers the lockers that they have for the water attractions are paid Hmm. so you're able to bring your bags on with you when you're on uh popeyes or dudley do rights or jurassic park so it's kind of a you could try we'll see what'll happen which we have all been soaked on those attractions so maybe it's worth the investment. Speaking of Jurassic Park River Adventure, the Universal Studios Hollywood version of the attraction, Jurassic Park The Ride, will be closing after 22 years of operation on September the 3rd. Just a day after that, A Bug's Land closes for good at Disney California Adventure Park, um, which makes me wonder how many Californian, Southern Californian theme park aficionados are going to spend their Labor Day weekend motoring back and forth through teen... Anaheim and Universal City trying to cram in one last ride on Heimlich's <laughs> choo-choo train, or for that matter, avoid being chewed by that animatronic T-Rex just before the big drop hill on Jurassic Park the ride. Yeah, speaking of big drops, did you hear how Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom is actually living up to its name? Well, at least when it comes to how the J.A. Bayona movie is actually doing at the box office. Oh, wait a minute. Earlier today, I was looking at the yearly domestic box office chart for 2018 and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom was the fourth highest grossing film for the year. I, I want to say this Universal Picture release has already sold like over 402 million worth of tickets stateside. Yeah, that's all fine and dandy, but the original Jurassic World at this point in its uh, original domestic uh, run, which is 43 days, had sold over $618 million worth of uh, tickets stateside. So just taking into account Fallen Kingdom has only done 65% of the business that the original Jurassic World did at the box office back in 2015. Didn't the exact same thing happen back in the summer of 97, which was when the Lost World Jurassic Park only did 56% of the business that the original Jurassic Park did back in June of 93? I mean... The original film sold $402.4 million worth of tickets during its initial domestic run, which is almost what Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom has made right now. Whereas The Lost World only sold $229 million worth of tickets when it was released stateside in May of, of 1997. But when you're looking at The Lost World versus original Jurassic Park debate, numbers only tell half the story. And I I really love the fact that with these new franchises, the fact that we're getting a double franchise in Jurassic Park with Jurassic Park, Jurassic World kind of going head to head. 
I don't know if we can compare one to the other. It's two completely different mindsets. And the media has changed so much between June of 93, when the original Jurassic Park came in, and just recently the Jurassic World. I don't know if it's comparable, but we'll definitely try. Mm. All right. Well, speaking of film franchises that Universal Pictures has brought into its theme parks, Dustin and I are going to act on a listener's question and talk about how the Fast and Furious films and how they were translated in the Universal theme parks once we get back from uh, this commercial break. And we're back. A Universal Joint listener that I'm calling Disgruntled Dave wrote in to say, I don't get why Universal Orlando keeps insisting on shoving the Fast and Furious franchise down theme park goers' throats. First they opened that snooze of a supercharged attraction earlier this year. Then Universal Studios Hollywood devotes a big chunk of its brand new cinematic celebration Lagoon show to that aged film franchise, which is, what, up to eight installments now? Why waste that much real estate and bandwidth on The Fast and the Furious, which is clearly a film franchise that's run out of gas? Dave, I, I think the folks at Universal Pictures might disagree with your assessment of the Fast and Furious film franchise. If we're strictly going by ticket sales, this series of action films, which only the Wizarding World and Transformer film franchises have earned more at the box office. I'm talking about the, the eight Harry Potter movies, which earned $7.7 billion worldwide total, as well as the first Fantastic Beast movie, which uh, sold $814 million worth of tickets. So that brings the Wizarding World franchises earned for Warner Brothers to date up to $8.5 billion. And let's not forget that there's uh, Fantastic Beats the 2, the, the Crime to Grindelwald, coming out in November this year. Transformers-wise, are you a fan of these, Dustin? Or? Yeah, so there were the five films. So uh, the first two were distributed by DreamWorks, and then there were three that were distributed by Paramount. They earned $4.3 billion total worldwide. And let's not forget the Bumblebee, a Transformers spin-off movie is coming to theaters later this year on December 18th. That's not bad. Yeah. $4.3 billion is more than I have in my bank account right now. That's true. Now, if we take a look at Universal's Fast and Furious film franchise, it sold $3.9 billion worth of tickets to date. The studio has three new movies that are directly tied to the franchise in its production pipeline. We've got the spinoff, which is built around Dwayne Johnson's ex-DDS agent character, Luke Hobbs, and Jason Stratum's uh, mercenary character, Deckard Shaw, is that the name? Yeah, Deckard Shaw. That, that's a great name. This film, which adds, at this point is untitled, uh, will be directed by Deadpool's David Leash and will supposedly start shooting in September, right after The Rock finishes working on Disney's Jungle Cruise movie. Then it's supposed to release in August of, of 2019, uh, basically a year from now. But then you have Jason Statham, who's out doing publicity for The Meg, which opens in theaters on August the 10th. And he says that Hobbs and Shaw will be with... Did he say Hobbs and Shaw? Did he maybe give a name to this movie? Mm. Okay, maybe maybe he's just playing it up. Okay. <laughs> but he said that it's a, um, a darker, gritty, and real 
which will obviously be a bit of a departure from the most recent Fast and Furious films. Okay, and in addition to this series spinoff, there will also be a Fast and Furious 9, which is currently scheduled to be released April 10th, 2020, and a Fast and Furious 10, which, if Universal Pictures has its way, will be released at theaters on April 2nd, 2021. What did I hear about Justin Lin? Justin Lin, who uh, previously helmed four other installments in the series, so it was uh, Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift in 2006, 2009's Fast and the Furious, 2011's Fast Five, and 2013's Fast and Furious Six, well, he kind of opted out of directing Fast and Furious, or Furious 7. Sorry, there's a lot of Fasts, a lot of Furiouses in this franchise, and it's very difficult to keep them all straight. But Lin had the chance to uh, to helm the third installment, the Paramount's uh, reboot of the Star Trek film series, Star Trek Beyond. And that was released back in theater, oh, July of 2016. It seems like forever ago. Yeah, and just to be clear here, This wasn't the original plan for Universal's Fast and Furious franchise. Back in February of 2016, the studio announced that Fast and Furious 9 would be opening in theaters on April 19th, 2019. But then the eighth film in the series, The Fate of the Furious, opened in theaters in April of 2017, and moviegoers were so taken with Hobbs and Shaw's antics from that film that the producers then began talking about spinning off the characters, these characters, for their own uh, series of films, which I, I understand didn't necessarily make Tyrese Gibson happy. Tyrese was one of the, the original faces of the Fast and Furious films. He was featured in five of them and had a, a really prominent role and was actually one of the faces, which is why when he took to social media in September to complain, honestly, pretty loud and fairly long about what he saw The Rock, um, Dwayne Johnson's, screwing up a very good thing, what he saw for the rest of the franchise's cast. Now, it was a very public bellyaching, which we don't see a lot of, but you know, when it happens, it does take some some managing to figure out exactly why and what's going to happen. But that didn't deter The Rock or studio management, which is why on October the 4th of 2017, Universal Pictures announced that it would be delaying Fast and Furious 9's release to theaters. Now, if I remember, this caused all sorts of speculation in Hollywood. People were wondering... Does this have anything to do with the the fate of the Furious having not sold nearly as many tickets as Furious 7 did? Which is true. Uh, Furious 7, which was released to theaters in April of 2015, earned $353 million during its domestic run, $1.16 billion overseas for a worldwide box office of $1.51 billion. Whereas Fate of the Furious, which was released to theaters in April of last year, only sold $226 million worth of tickets during its domestic run, which was just 64% of the business that Furious 7 had done stateside two years previous. And, and likewise, Fate of the Furious also saw a slight drop in ticket sales overseas. It only did 86% of the business that Furious 7 had done internationally. You know, when you factor in, because whatever a film makes, that's one number. But you have to factor in the fact that these pictures cost a lot of money and when you're looking at some of these actors that command 
massive contracts like The Rock, Vin Diesel, and Tyrese, it takes a lot of dollars to get all that together. So when uh, Furious 7 came out, it, it actually cost Universal Pictures $190 million to make. And then with the the Fate of the Furious, it reportedly cost the studios $250 million to make. Well, that 30% jump in production costs, coupled with Furious 8's 35% drop in domestic uh, ticket sales, didn't exactly scream that all things are going just fine with this franchise, especially in the uppermost level of Universal Pictures management, where honestly, Furious 7 and Fate of Furious, that's just another a spot on the Excel spreadsheet. If you compare how Fate of the Furious did back in spring of 2017 with how Fast and Furious did, uh, Fast and Furious 6 did back in May of 2013, then things look far rosier for, for 8. Because Fast and Furious 6 did 238 million during its entire domestic run, which is really within spitting distance of what Fate of the Furious made stateside April of last year. and. If you compare the uh, 550 million that Fast and the Furious Six made internationally versus the one billion point hundred and sixty so million one point yeah million uh, you know for Fate of the Furious what it did overseas I mean even when you factor in the production costs the eighth film in the series was a far bigger earner overall for Universal Pictures than the sixth installment of the series was absolutely the big thing and when you talk to a lot of folks in Hollywood. They'll tell you the real reason that Furious 7 was the top earner in this series, that most moviegoers were actually curious. They wanted to see how Universal Pictures was going to handle Paul Walker's death. The shooting of Fast and Furious 6 was already underway in the fall of 2013 when the actor was tragically killed in a single car accident on November 30th of that year. Uh, getting back now to Universal Pictures' decision to effectively spin Fast and Furious's Luke Hobbs and Deckard Shaw characters off into their own series. My understanding is there may be another reason other than the obvious one here, which was to increase the number of coins that we're going to pour directly into Comcast coffers. And you're the big Vin Diesel, you know, Dwayne Johnson fan. Dustin, why don't you tell this story? Back in August of 2016, which was just as production of uh, Fast and Furious 8 was wrapping up, Dwayne Johnson took to social media to complain about his co-workers. To be specific, The Rock posted on Instagram that he had zero tolerance for candy asses. That's funny. <laughs> That's hilarious because as The Rock, that was his catchphrase. Candy asses is what it is. But no one knew who The Rock was complaining about. TMZ did a little searching and it was revealed that it was Vin Diesel. So the face and the star of the Fast and Furious franchise. Supposedly, after wasting far too much time on set waiting for Diesel to finally get his ass in gear, Johnson decided to go public with what he saw as his co-star's lazy, lackadaisical attitude towards work. Now, once the behind-the-scenes stuff started showing up online, Universal Pictures execs, reportedly arranged for a secret meeting. This is great that it's a secret meeting that is publicized. I always find that funny. Between Vin and Dwayne. It wasn't secret. We know about it. We could possibly even pinpoint exactly where it happened because they both have uh, Instagram accounts. But come August 10th of that year, 
as production of Fate of the Furious was officially winding down, Johnson officially declared that his feud with Vin Diesel was now over. And in a second post to Instagram, The Rock said, family is going to have differences of opinion and conflict can be a good thing. Now, when it's followed by a great resolution, I was raised on a healthy conflict and welcome it. Like any family, we get better from it. Do you really think this was a good idea, Jim? It sounds like a professional way to sort of put a cap on things and move on. So did they move on? Yeah, they cashed their checks. Uh. And then everything was fine. And then Vin Diesel decided to post on uh, on social media because that helps everything. And he said, give me a second and I will tell you everything. Hey. Everything. <laughs> That's hilarious. Because when it comes down to it, senior management at uh, Universal Pictures had to intervene. And they told both of uh, the, the bald-headed action heroes to literally and figuratively put a sock in it. Which, if you are a wrestling fan, once again, going back to The, the Rock, he had a sock thing that he did. But it's okay. For a while, they actually did. They were cordial. They did publicity. They were never best friends, but they showed up and they did their job, kind of. Because in spring of 2017, rolled around and it was time for Diesel and, and Johnson to start doing publicity for Fate of the Furious, Vin just couldn't help himself. When he was being interviewed by USA Today and was asked about what happened with The Rock, Diesel said, I think some things have been blown out of proportion. I don't think that that was Dwayne's intention. I know how uh, he appreciates how much I work uh, this franchise. The ripple effect from that uh, continues on, as I understand it. April of this year, when The Rock is out doing publicity for Rampage, he flat out told reporters that he may not return for Fast and Furious 9 or Fast and Furious 10. That For this particular period of time, it, it made more sense for him to concentrate on the movie that he and Stratham are, are the spinoff that they're making that they try to make that the best possible movie which may not be a bad thing I mean if you disregard his cameo at the very end of Tokyo Drift Diesel basically sat out the second and third installments of the Fast and Furious film franchise and that seemed to make Universal Picture fans of this series cheer all the louder when Vin's you know Dominic Totero character came back on the canvas for Fast and Furious 4, so maybe keeping Luke Hobbs off screen for Fast and Furious 9 and 10 might be a smart play in the long run. After all, what is the old saying? How can I miss you if you won't go away? <laughs> oh, it's so true. It's actually interesting hearing some of these, uh, some of the theories, not conspiracy, but, you know, educated guesses that are making the rounds right now as to why Dwayne's most recent film, Skyscraper, which was released by Universal Pictures back on July 13th of this year, hasn't been doing all that well at the domestic box office. Uh, to date, it's only grossed $62.5 million stateside. And honestly, I haven't seen it. Jim, have you seen it? On advice of counsel, I'm not answering that. <laughs> I'll take that as a maybe. But you have to compare that 
to the $99.3 million that Rampage earned uh, to date since that Dwayne Johnson movie was released domestically back on April 13th of this year. But he also has another movie that he was involved with, the $404 million Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle, which when you're looking at Jumanji, when that came back, everyone was worried about, well, it's not the first one. It's not the original cast. Well, it seemed to do pretty well. Can you compare the three? I don't know. If you look at how these Dwayne Johnson films, these three films did overseas, you can pick up on a similar sort of pattern. You know, Jumanji, huge hit overseas, made $577 million internationally. Rampage, on the other hand, made $326 million sold that many tickets overseas and skyscraper and again to date you know it's only sold 196 million dollars worth of tickets overseas now this universal picture release has yet to open in several important international territories which will no doubt add to international overseas box office but if you talk to industry insiders what they seem to think happened here is well they point to Amazon Videos and iTunes, how they made the digital HD version of uh, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, available for purchase on uh, March 6th of this year. And uh, when the Blu-ray and DVD version of Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, hit store shelves on March 20th. Well, that was just three weeks and change before Rampage arrived in theaters. And when you're looking at it, in today's day and age, Blu-ray and DVD... That may not make up a huge segment of the pop of the the sales as it did 10, 15 years ago, but it's still a very large segment of the population who still want to have that physical DVD or physical Blu-ray in their hand. And face it, we only have so much money in our wallets, you know. So it's it's you, know, you have to when you're making those sorts of entertainment choices, do you pay for the digital download? Do you pay for the Blu-ray, or do you see some go to see something at theaters? And and wait, it gets worse because. Amazon Video and iTunes made the digital version of Rampage available for purchase on June 26th of this year. Blu-ray hit store shelves on July 17th, which was just three days before Skyscraper opened in theaters. So in short, when you factor in the digital downloads, the Blu-rays, the DVD versions of Dwayne's earlier movies, there's some serious concern that you're right, it doesn't make up as big a market segment perhaps as it once did, but it still managed to cannibalize the potential domestic box office of The Rock's most recent theatrical releases. Absolutely. And when I was running a blockbuster back in the day, we would have every week you'd have a, a video come out and, you know, we'd we get them on uh, the release would be on a Tuesday. And it was very interesting that you wouldn't see the same headliner released in back-to-back weeks because you wanted to build up the anticipation of these stars. So you you wouldn't see a Tom Cruise movie followed by a Tom Cruise movie. You would see a rock followed by another, you know, usually a, a different style of movie being the, the headliner. And then a couple of weeks later, you would see another style like that. Which is why if I were an executive at the Walt Disney Studios, this whole situation would greatly concern me. After all, they currently have their Jungle Cruise movie, which which stars Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt, scheduled to come out on October 11, 2019. Whereas Universal Pictures has 
this Hobbs and Shaw Fast and Furious spinoff that Dustin and I have been talking about repeatedly in this part of the Universal Joint. That's scheduled to come out on August 2nd, 2019. So just 10 weeks separate the domestic release dates of these two starring Dwayne Johnson projects. And if you go by what's been going on recently with Universal Studios Home Entertainment and their release pattern, which has the Amazon Video and iTunes making the digital HD version of, take for example, one of their big pictures for this year, Fifty Shades Freed. That was available just 10 weeks after that Universal Pictures production was released theatrically. And on the other hand, if you look ahead to what Universal Studios uh, Home Entertainment is currently planning on doing with Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, in that case, the Amazon Video and iTunes digital HD version, that's out just 11 weeks after this Jurassic World sequel first bout in theater stateside. So... That suggests just days after Disney's Jungle Cruise makes its domestic debut, Dwayne Johnson fans are going to make kind of an interesting financial choice. Do they purchase the digital HD version of The Rock's Fast and Furious spinoff, Hobbs and Shaw, or do they buy a ticket to Disney's Jungle Cruise movie? Those are very different movies. And when you are a, a rock fan you will probably end up seeing both of them, but I don't know how much money you will be spending before it comes out. And and all of this does tie into the the original conversation, which was why? And it's it's a dollars thing. The more that a movie makes in theaters, the more passion that the creative folks will be able to bring in. If a movie does incredibly well at the box office, people want to pick up the Blu-ray. They want to pick up the DVD. Or for that matter, the Targets, the the Walmarts of the world will give it better positioning, you know, inside the stores. I mean, there's a, a genuine ripple effect here. How much overlap will there be between, say, the crowd that turns out for Hobbs and Shaw? That's it's really based on what Jason Straithman has been saying. That that sounds to be more of a hardcore action adventure movie and Mm-hmm. Whereas Jungle Cruise, Disney is really hoping that this will be their next Pirates of the Caribbean. They want this first film to become a series, but a series of family-friendly adventure, fantasy comedy elements. And if that's what you were really shooting for, why would you hire Jean Colette Serrera to direct this movie? I mean, he did that. The most recent movie is The Shallows, that really grim Blake Lively gets stalked by a great white movie. And not not to mention, didn't he make The Commuter, where it's like, hi, do this for me or I'll kill your family. (laughs) Though, I I guess to be fair here, didn't Gore Verbinski, before he started making all the Pirate to the Caribbean movies... What, The Ring or The Grudge? Or I mean, he was mostly known for horror, wasn't he? Yeah, and anytime someone says we're going to make the next Pirates, it goes back to what happened before Pirates. And it brings up The Haunted Mansion. I still have that movie sitting behind me in my office. It was a great idea. Not every intellectual property is good for a movie. This could be one of them. But, you know, given the fact that something like Fast and the Furious 
that franchise has already poured $3.7 billion into Comcast's bank account that Universal Pictures has three additional installments of this series, you know, two direct sequels and one spinoff in active development right now. That's kind of why, and I, I love the name Disgruntled uh, Dave, that was great, why Universal Creative and Universal Entertainment saw fit to build a Fast and Furious supercharged attraction, as well as the segment that features footage from Fast and Furious films into the new cinematic celebration that's currently going on at, uh, at Universal Studios Florida. It's not like the parks didn't already have a Fast and Furious attraction. I mean, how many people out there remember taking the Universal Studios Hollywood tram tour where they, they had the Tokyo Drift vignette? Like I think it debuted back in June of 2006. You know, it was kind of weird. It was these two faux drift racers that, you know, after fire and explosion and some CO2 smoke then began dancing at the the end of these robotic arms and now what's kind of interesting is these very same robotic arms are the ones that maneuver all of the flying benches through hogwarts castle yeah it was the first kuka arm. there you go so you had the kuka arm that first went in i think it was the seized with nemo at epcot and then as people started to see this in real life the technology that was behind it the wheel started kind of going and like, okay, how can we bring this into different elements? And when this came out, I, I've seen the videos of it. I've seen it up close and personal. And it's hilarious because you don't realize it until it's at the very end that they are full-out KUKA arms. And you've seen it before. The producers of the Fast and Furious films, they hated extreme close-up. Or at <laughs> least that that's what I've been told. In fact... They supposedly insisted to management that if this Universal Picture franchise was going to end up as part of the tram tour, well, the Fast and Furious portion of the Universal Studios tour had to be exciting and cool, which is why July of 2013, the Fast and Furious Extreme Close-Up closes, and then 23 months later, after testing and production and construction, Fast and Furious Supercharged debuted as the new grand finale of the tram tour of Universal Studios Hollywood. More importantly, that's why the creative team who works at Universal Orlando Resort reimagined the grand finale of the Universal Studios Hollywood's now 53-year-old tram tour as a standalone attraction for Universal Studios Florida. Granted, it's all up for interpretation, just like any experience that someone goes on. You'll have your opinions because they're yours, and that's what makes a theme park a living and breathing environment. This is Dustin's way of saying he doesn't like the supercharged attraction. But you didn't hear that from me. I tried it. I will continue to try it. I it's I not love the brand fact that it was cereal. There. You either like it or you don't. <laughs> no, never mind. Okay. Well, uh, thanks to Disgruntled Day for passing along this query. And if any of you have got questions about the Universal Parks and Resorts, or, or for that matter, any of the films or TV shows that Universal Pictures has produced over the past 96 years, feel free to pass those uh, along to Dustin and myself, and, and we'll then try to answer them as part of a, a future podcast in the series. Speaking of which, the Universal Joint podcast is produced, as Len Testa says, fabulously by the one, the only, Aaron Adams. And if you like this show, we'll be sure to check out some of the other great series that are on the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. That's it for now, folks. On behalf of Dustin Fuse and myself, 
Thanks for listening, and take care, okay? It's been groovy having you hang with us for the Universal Joint. Tune in again for this and other great podcasts found on the Jim Hill Media Network.